Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 160 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to my guest. Today, I have Jane. She comes to us from the UK, and she and her husband, Jimmy, have been doing really some amazing things since the death of their son, Josh. When they met years ago... They were both actually in film school together, although Jane went on to become a therapist. After the sudden death of their son, Josh, it really just seemed natural that they would turn to film in their grief process and in their grief journey. And they have made some really beautiful films if you want to learn more about their organization, you will, could go to thegoodgriefproject.co.uk to find out even more about them and to see some links to their films, although their latest one is available on Amazon. Now Jane and Jimmy are expanding even more and are publishing a book called When Words Are Not Enough. Although this was not planned at all, the book is actually being released today, October 6th, on the day of this podcast release. So you should be able to find the book anywhere online where books are sold. But to find a link for sure, please go to my website, andysmom.com, and I will be sure to have the link for you to be able to purchase the book. I know that you are going to enjoy listening to Jane. I certainly did. I felt like I learned a lot from her, actually. And you'll note that I get a little emotional towards the end of this interview because she says so many things that hit close to home with me on things that are going through my own mind right now and struggles that I currently have even four years after Andy's death. Again, if someday you would like to share your story on the Always Andy's Mom podcast, please write to me. Just email me at marcy, M-A-R-C-Y, at andysmom.com to share your story. Remember, everyone's story is special and unique and wonderful. You don't have to create a big organization or write a book or make a movie or start a podcast. I just want to remind all of you of that. Don't judge yourself. I feel like people judge us all enough from the outside. We don't need to judge ourselves from the inside as well. So now I know that you are really going to enjoy listening to Jane, Josh's mom. Thank you so much, Jane, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. And it's so nice to speak with you. And firstly, can I say how very, very sad I am to hear about your son and his death and loss and that, you know, 
we don't ever get over it, but we can learn to live with it. But I'm really sorry you've had to go through a, a bereavement oh. like this in the wrong order of things. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and I feel the same for you, obviously, too. Your, uh, your accident occurred far earlier than ours did, because you're 11 years out now, aren't you? Yeah, so our son Josh was 22 when he died. Mm -hmm. And he was on the trip of a lifetime. He'd actually found a job that was his dream job. Uh-huh. Working as a young producer for the Ministry of Sound in London, and it was his dream. Yeah. And he was very happy and he'd taken out some time from work to go on a trip. And he was traveling around, you know, different countries. And at the time of the accident, he was actually in Vietnam and it was a road accident. Mm -hmm. Which was one of those terrible things that kind of in the blink of your an eye, your life changes forever. But he was in such a chain of unfortunate events. Yeah. And he died instantly, age 22, you know, and as you know, that when that happens, your life changes mm -hmm. and your experience of death changes. And this was the one thing that doesn't change is your love. Right. That just grows. Right. Right. Grief is about right. love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Grief is love, isn't it? And grief is agony. Um, but, you know, I've had 10 years, 11 years to learn to live with this. And it's hard work grieving. Yes. And you can't sort of go round it, in my experience. I know for a lot of people, they want to go around it, but I think you've got yes. to go through it. You can't go under it. You can't go over it. There's a fantastic children's author in the, in the UK called Michael Rosen, and he's written a book called We're All Going on a Bear Hunt. Right. And it's <laughs> all about, you know, you, you, you just got to go through these things. There's no way around it. I love that. We, I used to do that with kids all the time, you know, that going on a bear hunt. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a fun thing to do. And it's so true, isn't it? You know, it's grief is very fickle. And that the learning both as a therapist and as a bereaved mother is that if you don't get up close to it and face it square on, it gets you, it catches up with you. And in many ways, unfortunately, denial doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. And the body has a way of, if you like, manifesting symptoms, whether it be psychological or physical. So the repressed grief does find a way out and that doesn't help anyone. So in many ways, the tragedy is that, you know, you're going to have to go through a very painful exploration if you are going to learn to live with your grief. Mm -hmm. For me, way back then when Josh died, it was unimaginable. You know, it didn't matter. I was a therapist. I was someone who'd lost my son and any wisdom I had was gone. And all I could feel at the time was what most bereaved people feel is I don't know if I can survive. Right. And I think I can't survive. And that's not what people probably around you thought. No. They probably thought, oh, she's a therapist. She'll be able to handle this better. We don't need to worry about her as much. Yes. Or right. some people did say to me, well, you'll never work again. You're a therapist. How can you work when your heart's been broken and your life's been shattered? And that's not helpful either. <laughs> no, no, neither one of those things are helpful. Well, why don't we go back and talk a little bit about Josh and just his personality, just so we can get to know him a little bit better. Yes, yes. So he was, Josh was a really, I mean, he was very ordinary. He was my extraordinary son. Mm-hmm very ordinary young man, a gorgeous young man. And he'd always been a bit of a rascal at school and, you know, liked to push the boundaries and take risks and have fun. And he, he led a really good life. Not very confident as a young man, really, but suddenly 
as he was growing up and as he found the dream job that he'd always wanted, he suddenly became really competent and confident. Mm -hmm. He got here, he got contact lenses, and he, he blossomed into this. He went from being this gangly young man with glasses and very little confidence to this incredibly handsome young man. It was like a sort of transformation. Oh, wow. And it was staggering to see. And he was at such a happy place in his life. He loved calling exciting things mundane. Mundane was one of his favorite words. If something really excited him, he said it was mundane. Which <laughs> always took people slightly by surprise, but it usually meant, wow. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah he had uh -huh. a, dry, a very dry sense of humor. Um, and he did a lovely thing for his 21st, the year before he died. He, My dad died with dementia. But before he died, Josh did a fundraising skydive for him and jumped out of the plane with his brother, Joe, and raised a lot of money to support the Alzheimer's Society. And afterwards, we made a little film and we said to him, how was it? And he went, Ooh, it was pretty mundane, mum. <laughs> but it was one of the most exciting things he'd ever done. That gives you a little bit of a measure of Josh. He had a great sense of humour. He was great fun. And in many ways, it's interesting because... We had him in our lives for 22 years, but at the time he died, I'd taken off my responsible hat. I'd kind of right. thought, my job is done. He's out there in the world. I'll let him go now. Roots and wings. Right. So it was even more shocking in a way because all mothers, well, most mothers have an element of anxiety of what if and, you know, and that kind of thing. And you just try and steady yourself. So when it happened, it was like, this doesn't happen to me. This doesn't happen, yeah. but it does. And we have to kind of absorb it. And in those early months and years, it was terribly hard, particularly once the funeral was over, because we decided that we'd have to create a funeral for Josh that was right, because we didn't get to say goodbye to him. He died in Vietnam, so we never got to say goodbye. It was very sudden. So the yeah. funeral that we were going to create for him was going to have to be some way of kind of letting him go and saying goodbye. And all his friends wanted to be part of it, but felt that they couldn't be part of it. They were worried they would cry. We said, we want you to sing songs. We want you to do whatever you want. They said, but we'll be too upset. And we said, that's fine. We'll all be upset together. Yeah. The first film we made after Josh died was called Beyond Goodbye. And that's on our website. And it's the most beautiful, beautiful, happy, sad collection of stories and tributes from his friends, reflections from his friends, reflections from his siblings about what his death meant to them and how the funeral for them, or should we say the celebration of his life for them, made his death more digestible, made it real, because nobody got to say goodbye. And so on the day of the funeral, the surprise was very much that we had the opportunity to support each other. They supported us, we supported them. And what comes across in the film Beyond Goodbye is that people said, I feel better. I feel better for having, and they felt ashamed. They felt embarrassed. And we just felt honored. People sang songs. Somebody cracked jokes and said, Josh, you still owe me a tenor. I mean, that's when I'm going to get that back now. There was a lot of dark humor, a lot of irony. And people yeah. laughed and they cried. And it was so cathartic. And it made it real. It really is, isn't it? It, it's funny, recently my husband had a friend that he grew up with whose wife got very sick and died within a month. And so she, and she's not that old, just in her 40s. And she said, I don't want a funeral. And so they have no funeral, they have no celebration of life, they have nothing because that's what she said. 
and they wanted to honor her wishes. But I think what people don't understand, it's not for the person who died. It's for everyone else. And actually, it can be so healing. So it's very sad to me that 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 is unable to happen, Mm. you know, and unable to switch. It's one of the complexities of... of, Right, right, absolutely. Because the funeral, if you like, is for the people left behind, but you want to honor the wishes. So for us, it was about creating a ritual, creating a ritual. Right. So what would have been helpful is for someone to have been able to talk to her ahead of time and say, you know what, it's really not for you so much it can be really really healing for your family and be able to kind of get her on board to this is going to be a way that I can help my family but maybe as well it's important to consider and I think people feel under a huge amount of pressure depending on your cultural background and your religion to have an event very soon after the person has died but in my way of thinking it can happen at any point. And maybe some people are just not ready in those early weeks and months. And when you think about what people went through with COVID, a lot of people didn't get to say goodbye to their family or a loved one who had died. So actually they needed to create rituals maybe two years after, three years after. There was a time lag and that ritual was still therapeutic. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So after that, you had that funeral that was so kind of healing for you. Talk about your grief journey, because I think you come from a very unique perspective in what you do for a living and what your husband does for a living. Yeah, so myself and Jimmy, Josh's dad, my husband, we Mm -hmm. met at film school. Okay. And we made films together. And when Josh was born, I decided to go and train as a therapist, which is something I'd always thought of doing, because I thought that was certainly an easier profession when you want to be around your kids a bit, because filmmaking is not at all sociable. And it's hard work. So I started to train as a therapist. Um, Jimmy carried on making films. He's made documentaries. He's got a BAFTA. He's, he's, He's an amazing film editor for documentaries. But with Josh's death, both of our lives were so changed. And we kind of realized that We wanted to go back to what we'd done before. We wanted to be creative. We wanted to be active. And for us, that was how we were going to get through our grief, by doing. Right. And it's for everyone, and there's no right or wrong way of grieving. But for us, making films, Jimmy wrote a book called Released within months of Josh dying, made a photography book that was self-published, This, unlike our latest book. But for us, the doing and the being active was the only way forward. Otherwise, we were going to sink. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we made films. The first one was Beyond Goodbye. The second one we made for a charity, which you'll know of in the States, called The Compassionate Friends. In the, in the UK, there's a charity called The Compassionate Friends, and that, there's a UK division. UK, mm-hmm. The UK, and there's an American, Compassionate Friends. And we made a film for them called Say Their Name. Because the thing that we discovered very early on in our grief was that nobody wanted to say the name of your child in case they made you cry. I know. Yeah, and well-intentioned, of course, but it's not people saying the name of your child that makes you cry. You're crying anyway. It's the fact that they've had the courage to mention the person, and you're crying because you're kind of happy that someone's mentioned their name. Right. I know I heard someone say that when you say my son's name, it's like music to me. Mm. 
Exactly. And that's, I thought was a beautiful analogy and it does. And music oftentimes can make you cry and it's certainly, I will cry, but yes. it is like hearing sweet music to hear yeah. that name again. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so that was a film we made for them because they were, they're a fantastic peer to peer support group. And I find them really helpful in mm -hmm. the stages of my grief, being able to speak with other parents or other people who'd been through something similar because I think what you find in the early stages of grief, you spend an awful lot of time helping people get over their shock that your son has died rather than getting help with your shock that your son had died. Right. right. You know, and I even remember one moment, which I'm very ashamed of, where I was actually back in London. Um, it was a couple of years after Josh had died and I bumped into someone whose son had gone to school with Josh. And she said to me, so how's Josh? And I, my thinking was, oh, if I tell them Josh died, I'm going to have to spend the next hour picking them up and putting them back together again. And I haven't got the time and I haven't got the inclination right now or the emotional strength. And I opened my mouth and I said, he's fine. Wow. That was in the early stages of my grief. And I think at the time I felt guilty. But what I was doing there was I did not want to have to put the work in to picking someone up and sorting them out. Right. Yeah. Now... At this stage in my grief, I'm okay with that. I don't need to sort it for other people. I think people need to take responsibility for how they respond. Yeah. I know I have people ask me how old my kids are, and I just say, they're teenagers. Hmm. Because Andy will always be a teenager, and now they're not all teenagers because I have a daughter who's 20. But no. I don't want to always go there with people. I don't feel like... I want to, and they want me to like go through all the ages of my kids, but I don't want to do that because then it's this whole, do I say how old he should be today? Do I say, hmm. you know, if I say he's 14, then all of a sudden he's like my youngest by a bunch and it just is somewhere I just don't always want to go. Well, you have to jump through some pretty complicated mental hoops when you're a bereaved parent, but... I do find myself that, you know, I tend to, I tend to say I have, I have three kids, one of whom is dead. Yeah. No, because I can deal with it. Yeah. I have this complicated thing too, because I have a foster son. So I used to say I have, I have four kids, three biological children and one foster son. But then it gets to the point where I have four kids, three biological, one of whom has died and a foster son. It's just, it gets so complicated. So a lot of times I just say three. And in my mind, I'm counting my son who has died. And in their mind, they're probably counting my son who, my foster son. So I don't know. It's it really just depends on the day and how complicated I want to get. Well, you know, and I think that's okay, isn't it? Because to be honest, some days it's straightforward and some days it's not. And I mean, birthdays and anniversaries for me, despite the fact it's a decade since Josh died, okay. I always find the birthdays, my birthday, really difficult. Not yeah. his, much his birthday, it's my birthday. I'm another year older and he's not here. Yeah, yeah. That always gets me in the gut. Right, and I think right. that's hard to explain. And the body, there's, a, you know, there's some fabulous writing about how the body keeps the score. Your body remembers yeah. the trauma and you do remain in touch with kind of dates and anniversaries. And sometimes when you dig into it, there's a reason why you're having a particularly bad day. We often have a bad Sunday because Sunday was the day the police knocked at our door and told us Josh had died. Yeah. 
And even now, we can sometimes on a Sunday, I'll say to Jimmy, I feel a bit down today. And he'll say, so do I. And then we'll go, it's Sunday morning. Yeah. The body yeah. keeps score. The mind remembers. My therapist says that to me all the time. She says, it's the body remembers. book by that title. <laughs> the body remembers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The body does remember. And so, but we have to be kind to ourselves. And as you will know, and as most bereaved people know, unless you're kind to yourself and you, you think about what you can cope with on certain days, you push yourself too hard. So you have to just recognize some days you can't deal with it. Some days you can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for us, making films, supporting other people, writing our book to be published next month is all about sharing the stories that people have honored us with. We're honoring their story, but we're also honoring Josh. And we're sharing the learning that has come through our trauma. And it is post-traumatic growth. And that sounds like a mouthful and might put people off, but actually it's really not. It's like mm -hmm. the learning that you gain from going through something that you would never have dreamt you'd have to face and coming out the other side stronger, even though your heart is still broken. Right. You can live with right. it. It is a task that people, you know, or an idea that people do get uncomfortable with, I should say. Yeah. They don't like the idea that this could come and make me somehow a better person. So that post-traumatic growth can be hard to digest right away. But I do feel like if you go through things long enough, we'll all admit that we do have some post-traumatic growth for sure. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I would do anything to bring Josh back. I mean, right. But I would not want to be who I was before he died. Right. Right. Because exactly he, he right. life cut short in his 22 years taught me about what's important. And I now value each day probably more than I ever did before, oddly, even though I miss him all the time. But I know each day is precious. And I'm lucky I have other children, mm -hmm. you know, but on our retreats and in our book and in our interviews with the work we do, we, we often meet people who've lost their only child, yeah. you know, and in the early stages of grief, having other children is what keeps you going because you can't just curl up into a ball and, you know, you have to keep going somehow. And when you've lost your only child, it's the hardest thing in the world. And, or it could be that you've never been able to have children. I mean, grief is everywhere. Right. I think right. everyone grieves for something. And I've learned that. I've learned a lot about that in the last 10 years. You know, it's not just about me. Yeah. And my grief, everyone's grief is so unique, but we're all joined together by loss in a way. And we have to adapt somehow. Yeah. And talking about losing your only child, I think that can be especially difficult too if you're a single parent and you lose your only child. That then you do feel really yeah. alone. That's mm -hmm. right. And, you know, not having those grandkids that we are very lucky to have. It's like, you know, you have to be so aware sometimes of how hard it is for people to absorb stuff. Mm -hmm. And the pain is so acute, particularly in the first years of grief. So talk about your organization that you founded there mm -hmm. in the UK. So we set up a charity called the Good Grief Project and the website mm -hmm. That is easy to find, though less easy now because there's an awful lot of projects that are setting up with similar names. But we are www.thegoodgriefproject.co.uk. And okay. we set up the website as a way of sharing our films, sharing our photographs 
and as a sort of, if you like, uh, a holding space for the charity that we'd set up, which runs retreats for bereaved families. So every year we run two retreats and those retreats are open to anyone. We fund them. Anyone can come on them. We fundraise as a small charity so that nobody is, is excluded. It's accessible to everyone. But what happens is people arrive on a Friday and they leave on a Sunday and they arrive just about always reluctantly on a Friday because they feel that it's going to be too painful. It's going to be too upsetting. It's going to be too difficult. Right. And what happens is that it's run by our family. My son, Joe, my stepson, Joe, runs the physical training, the personal training. Our daughter, Rosa, prepares the food. Jimmy and myself and another person does the photography. We have therapy space. We have creative writing. We have boxing. We have mindfulness and yoga. And people arrive and very often they say, this was a mistake, I shouldn't be here. And we just say, come in for a cup of tea and just go home afterwards. Well, I can say without exception, almost, I think there's never been someone who's left. Within an hour or two of being there, people just unfurl. They uncurl, they open up, their faces lift, their shoulders drop, their faces relax because they feel as if they can take the metaphorical mask off and be themselves. Yes. And it's a very rare opportunity to be with their child who is dead. Right, right. And that is true. We do wear a mask all the time. We feel like we keep this mask on and there are few opportunities that you really feel like you can take it off. Exactly so. And so they feel very comfortable, they relax, and then they take up the challenge of maybe creating a photograph, a new photograph. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the retreats are all about continuing bonds. It's about how do you take something from the past, your child, and carry them forward with you into the future? How do you fold them in to your heart and your body and your mind by creating new things in their memory? How do you do that? It's impossible. Well, it's not. And our new book is called When Words Are Not Enough. And every participant in there has written about how creativity has helped them come to terms with their grief. And that's our learning that everyone that we have included in our book has found creativity to be really, really helpful. And we're not talking huge murals or massive works of art. It could be any, anything from cutting up your child's T-shirts and making something new. Mm -hmm to making little pom-poms, to doing a huge mural. We have people who have, who swim, mm -hmm. cold water swimming, because for that, for them, that's their kind of creative way forward. We have such a cross section of people in the book, but all of them have done something to help them move forward in their grief. I love how you're talking about some of these littler things, because I've recently had some people writing to me saying, I'd love to be on the podcast, but all of your guests have just done so much, so many amazing things. They've all started organizations. They've all done this, 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 this. And I haven't done any of that. And I'm like, it does not matter. No, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. And I love how you are really celebrating those little things that people do. Because I know you've done something huge, right? I mean, you've done these films, you've created the website, you were writing a second book. I mean, there's a lot that you've done, 
but it doesn't mean that it's any more special or important or anything than the little than making some pom poms, right? That's right. So it's it's a bit like a pecking order of grief. It doesn't help. A pecking order of creativity doesn't help. It's about being able to absorb the possibilities and to rebuild hope and meaning. That's all it is. And it could right. be picking up. It could be going out and picking up a stone off the beach and writing your child's name on that stone. Mm -hmm. You cherish that stone, and you might put it somewhere, or you might not. But it is really not about you know, feeling inadequate. It's about feeling empowered, finding meaning again and creating, if you like, a way forward, a pathway through your agonizing, and I use the word agonizing pain yes. that follows the death of a child. There is no words. And that's why we've called the book when words are not enough. Because there are times when at Josh's funeral, I, I, my opening words were, there are no words. Mm -hmm. I stood there in front of hundreds of people and I said there are no words yeah I searched everywhere well and I think back to that those days too when we were having our visitation before the funeral and my favorite thing that people said to me was I don't have the words for you I don't have words for you you know that's and that's what I try to do now I don't have words for you but know that I'm here because yeah. that's what really matters. And the people that try to say something to somehow cheer you up or put a positive spin on it, or even if they say this is awful, which is awful, it's better to just say, I just don't have anything that I can give you with a spoken word. Yes. I think it's 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 really hard for people who feel that they want to help and they don't know how to help. And we need to yes. encourage people to get alongside their discomfort, their helplessness. And in the early stages of your grief, it's very difficult to do that, to say to people, you can't fix it. It's not for fixing. It's not for right. you to fix this. I, I know it's not going to be fixed. This is my reality. Please don't try and fix it. Just be alongside me. That's the greatest gift leave a plate of food at the door you can then go whether it gets eaten or not i don't know but that's what people did they brought food left at the doorstep i don't remember eating it but i'm sure we did that's probably how we survived yeah people are so kind but they're so terrified we had a recent screening we now live in devon and okay. um, a recent screening of our film at the local cinema and we got messages from a lot of people saying i'd love to come and see your film it's called a love that never dies but we're frightened to come and see it in case it upsets us now, this is not from bereaved people necessarily. This is from people who might not be bereaved. They're frightened of coming to see a film about a bereaved family who've made a film about bereaved people in case it upsets them. And what I would say to them is try and get over yourselves a little bit. <laughs> try and get alongside people. It's not okay to be on the run. Isn't, you know, it's like, just get out your comfort zone a bit because what people say when they come and see our film is, I feel better. It's okay. Yeah. Well. And oftentimes the fear of the unknown is the worst and that's it. And once you can know it a little bit, then it seems a little less scary and then it actually can be helpful. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when people say to me, what can I do to help? I have a friend who's lost a child. Yes. I often get asked that. I'll say, don't try and do too much. Just be there. If you say you're going to be there, be there. Mm -hmm. Don't promise what you can't offer, what you can't honor. But just be there silently, just be available, just be alongside. 
come to terms with your helplessness to fix this, that's what you can do. That's a gift. I love that. Mm -hmm. That's a gift, isn't it? Yes. And it's a difficult gift and it's not for everyone. No, and I love how you said come to terms with your helplessness because that is difficult for many, many people. They just feel this immense pressure to fix it and they can't. Well, one of our contributors to our feature documentary, which we made, it's called A Love That Never Dies. We, it was a road trip we made, myself and Jimmy, across America. We flew to New York. We, we drove from New York to San Francisco, interviewing bereaved parents along the way. And the film is their stories. Now, it took months to plan it. The road trip was a month, and then the editing was about a year. But it's the most beautiful road trip. It's a love story. It's not a death story. And every person in that film, and I think you'd like it, actually, if you watch mm -hmm. it. Oh, I'm sure. I watched the trailer and yeah. I am excited to watch the whole thing. I think it will be beautiful. And you can watch it on Amazon, I think, in, yes, here available. in the US, right? It's worldwide available. We, every, every, all the proceeds that we make from the films go back into our charity. It's really cheap to watch it. What helps us is if people review it on Amazon because that helps it get viewed more and more. So if people do watch it, it's fabulous for us to get a review. Right. But one of the people in that film said, coming to getting to grips with your helplessness is what really helps. Another person talks about wanting to remember how her son lived, not how he died. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much wisdom in it. And of course, people bit our hands off to be in it. I mean, a lot of people at our film screenings, when we have a, a film event, say, well, how do you find people to talk? And we say, people are desperate to talk. It's just that nobody wants them to talk. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I don't go searching for people to interview either. I don't. No. I mean, they just come. I, people just come because they want to tell their story. That's right. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to ask was about the film. How did you kind of come up with I that idea? Can you go back to the, that kind of planning part and then what that was like? Well, well, right from the early stages of our grief, we realized that people didn't want to talk to us because of what we represented as bereaved parents. There's an unconscious fear, I think, not recognized, mm -hmm. but it's contagious. Yes. Of course it's not, we know rationally, but unconsciously there's lots of things going on that we're not aware of. And we began to feel more and more isolated, more and more lonely and more bereft, it, like secondary losses. Following the yes. death of our son, we felt the loss of support, the loss of friendships. So we had to begin to seek out peer to peer support. And then we realized actually we wanted to share our stories of isolation and loneliness because we could. We had the capacity as filmmakers right. and therapists to do that. So we thought, well, why not do that? And let's see if we can find other people who feel the same as us. Is it just us? No, it's not. Everybody seemed to be feeling the same thing. And right. so we set up the interviews. Um, we plotted the journey across America. I mean, people approached us from Alaska and all sorts of places, but it had to be something that was realistic. And we, right. we traveled from New York to San Francisco. Um, and we basically spent a couple of days filming with everyone who wanted to be part. And interestingly, the interviews usually lasted like a therapeutic 50 minute hour. Uh-huh. It was very, they, all the participants said they found it really therapeutic to be able to get right into the heart of their story and their love and their grief without 
justifying anything straight in now obviously the film is made by a, a very very experienced film editor and a lot of films are made in the cutting room you know you have hours of material so we had to whittle it right down that's a huge challenge mm -hmm. but the content and the depth of authenticity and love is unbelievable mm -hmm. and the stories are very complex they're very complex stories, you know, from death by gunshot wound to road accidents. I mean, really complicated stuff. People who took their life. I mean, it's really, it's really, you know, there's, it's not really about how people died. It was about how we survive after right. death. We don't want to focus too much on the cause of death. We want to fo focus on the survival of the families afterwards. We also wanted to pay attention to siblings who are so often the forgotten mourners. I know my daughter Rosa said, well, mom, people always ask me how you are, but they don't ask me how I am. And I said, I'm really sorry, Rosa. And she'd say, well, your grief is worse than mine. And I'd say, that doesn't help you and it doesn't help me. Your grief is your grief. Yes, mm -hmm. I totally agree. I've talked to many siblings and I, that's always one of the questions that I ask is what do you get more? How are you or how's your mom? Yes. And it, invariably it's always, how's your mom? And, yes. and I think most people would say it's probably 10 to one the way when they get the asked, how's your mom compared to um, how are you? In terms of the, the films and the books, I suppose why we do it is because we're told that it helps other people to normalize something that is not normal mm -hmm. and we hope that the films and 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 when words are not enough the book will continue that sort of tradition of saying to people you it won't always be this agonizing we're not saying it's ever going to not be agonizing because it won't it's always going to hurt but the jagged edges get a little bit less jagged with the passing of time Mm -hmm. and the right support and it's so hard to find the right support it really is you know but it's important to follow your intuition and trust yourself because we all need different things everybody grieves so differently i always think a good analogy is when you think about your grief right away is this just huge boulder that you're barely able to drag along behind you that it's holding everything up and over time that gets a little bit smaller and exactly. eventually it becomes this sort of rock that you keep in your pocket that has a lot of sharp edges that will get you and bother you but you can walk along with your life at a fairly normal pace now yeah. it's not this big huge thing holding back everything it's just something that's with you all the time, poking you every now and again, but not holding you back quite so much. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. I agree. Yes. But it's so different for everybody. Yes. And so, you know, I think any rules around grief and grieving doesn't help. No. Everyone does it their own way. And at their own pace, too. Exactly so. Mm -hmm. Exactly so. Yes, because I think, um, you know, recently, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast about recently that prolonged grief disorder, how it's kind of acting like you're supposed to be all back to your normal self and um, part of normal society and doing everything in a year. And if you're not, then you have this prolonged grief disorder. I think then if that were the case, all bereaved parents have prolonged grief disorder. And that doesn't necessarily mean that 
they're doing something wrong because that's just the normal process of grief. I mean, I think a lot of people have are barely started their grieving process when you hit a year. Unfortunately, a lot of people feel that they're not grieving right, and that's just so unhelpful. Yeah. People will often say to me, my private clients will say, you know, it's been six weeks and people think I should be over it, and I just, I'm, I've just lost and I'm not doing well enough, you know, and that's just so brutal, isn't it? Yeah. And when I say to people, if it's a year or two years after, or even three, it's still early days. They go, they always say, oh, thank you. That's a relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've gotten to that point, too, that I'm at four years now. Are you at four and years? I, I don't like to even tell people that because I feel like if I mention, like, we just had an anniversary. If I mention we just had an anniversary people will feel bad for me. If I mentioned that it's the four year anniversary, I feel like people would look at me and go, really? Yes. You know, you're not better than this then? You're crying? Four years, come on. You know? I I get exactly where you're coming from. And I think this is one of the tragedies for bereaved people. And one of the reasons for, I mean, writing a book and making a film is not easy, but one of the reasons you do it, and one of the reasons you probably do what you do is because it's so important that people get over the kind of stereotypes and the timeframes and the beliefs about how grief should be managed. And your heart will always be particularly sore on the anniversaries and those dates, whether it's four years, eight years, 10 years, that's, that's the nature of grief. Mm-hmm. That's the nature of it. Um, and judging and if you like assessing it is not helpful. No, it's not helpful at all when other people judge you. And, and when you're getting to the point where you're starting to feel a little bit embarrassed because you feel like I should be in a different place now than I am. Yes. Well, what you're describing, of course, and I think it's not right that you should feel this, is shame. Shame that you're not feeling more robust. I should be better. I shouldn't be crying. And of course, really, in a way, that's when the body kicks in and panic attacks take over and physical symptoms take over because the more you repress it and the more you try and fit in with the def- definition of what is a healthy grief, the more pressure you put on yourself. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, you know, it is important to know if you're at risk or if you can't carry on, then you must get help. But most people feel at some point after the death of a child that they do want to die. Yeah. And you don't want people to rush off and say, she's suicidal. She's not <laughs> suicidal. He's not suicidal her heart or his heart is broken and they're in shock and they're traumatized stay alongside them keep an eye out if they seem to be feeling that continually then yes step in and help mm-hmm. observe contain be with well and i think you you really hit the nail right on the head for me for sure and that saying if i'm starting to feel these things then i'll feel into my body more and i absolutely have been absolutely like for a while i was not even seeing a therapist anymore i felt like i was doing pretty well but i think this expectation that i put on myself that i should be better i should be better i'm actually worse now i'm having to see the therapist again i'm getting more anxious especially driving all of those things that were bothering me at the beginning are now bothering me again and i think it's because i just have these unrealistic expectations or something but it's very brave of you and very important of you to share that with people who listen to this because that's normal it's normal to pack it all away but it's not healthy 
and it won't help you in the long term. What's really helpful is you're saying, I've gone through this, I, 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 I should be feeling better, I thought I was, but no, grief is like a tsunami, it comes and gets you when you least expect it. And that's okay, as long as you can step up to getting the right help when you need it. And I think, I think for most bereaved people throughout their ongoing lives, there's going to be times when they're going to need help. I need help from time to time in my life because of anniversaries or because of just my own aging process. I'm getting older. I'm every year I get older. My son isn't here. He should be here. You have to you have to iron out the complexities of it all. It's back to front and it's complicated. And with the right support, whether it's peer support or therapy, it doesn't matter. It's reaching out and finding the right place to be able to articulate it and not bottle it up so that you, you've become frightened of driving or frightened of getting on a train or frightened of stepping out of the house. We, we, we're all prone to it when we've been traumatized. Trauma doesn't go away. We have to work with our trauma. Mm-hmm. It's tough. It's bloody hard work. <laughs> have you gone back to working as a therapist then as well? Yes, I've been working as a therapist virtually the whole way through. But I, I got, I took supervision. I have therapy. My work is I'm, I've, I feel like I've grown as a therapist. I'm so much better as a practitioner than I ever was before. I was good enough before as a therapist. I was, you know, fine. I'm a senior practitioner. I do all the CPD you need to do, but I'm so much better now because as a therapist, because I really understand it from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And that's important. So and did you I take some time work. off then? Yes, I took some time off and I really valued it. But going back to work was really important to me and it really helped me because in a way with grief, you can lose your confidence. Yeah. As a professional, you lose your confidence. You know, in your working life, I'm sure you lost your confidence after the death of your son, you know. Yeah. And to get it back, I think for some people going back to work is really helpful. For other people, it's not. But I really loved working and going back to work, but I didn't work as many hours. I worked reduced hours and I made sure I had extra supervision, but it really worked for me. Yeah. I mean, for me, I ended up having to stay home a year. I just, I didn't completely stay home. I did administrative work, but I only did administrative work for a year because it was just too painful. But then it got to the point, it's interesting really. And I've said this on the podcast before, it really took me starting the podcast and kind of having something to do with my grief and something to do with Andy and yeah. that sort of purpose for my grief allowed me to get my life back as a physician. Well, isn't that fascinating? Because that's at the heart of our new book. It's doing, it's being active. It's finding a purpose. It's finding a way forward. Mm-hmm. We have people in the book who haven't been able to paint since the death of their child and suddenly they could paint again or draw, you know, it's it's so different for everybody but finding a purpose and finding meaning is at the heart of what you're talking about there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I never ever would have guessed that this would be what I anything I would have done ever no. in a million years I've never even really listened to a podcast except a few of the ones that my husband put out I I just didn't and then suddenly I felt this like desire that maybe I wanted to reach out to other parents and help them tell their stories. And I I thought it was really interesting that you talked about you going through and doing these kind of 50 minute almost sessions of talking to people and how they felt 
so just I don't I don't know they just it just made them feel better and that's sort of what I do That's right. So it's containing. It's it's good for you. It makes you feel good, but it also makes your participants feel heard. Your listening right heart. And listening. There's a fabulous book by the person who's written the foreword to our book. She's called Dr. Catherine Mannix, and she's written a book called Listen, and she's written a book called another book called With the End in Mind, and she is just inspirational. And she has worked with the dying for she's she's retired now but she's she's just so wise and what she says is it's all about listening mm -hmm. listening is not something we necessarily know how to do now i know that as a therapist i've been trained to listen but most people think they're listening when they're not listening yeah and the whole book is stories about how people can help how people can listen and i would really recommend that book in your resources listen by dr catherine mannix it's fabulous and she writes a wonderful foreword to our book. And in the foreword to our book, she talks about coming to see our film at the Cheltenham Literature Festival and thinking, I wish I wasn't here. I don't want to watch a film about, I don't know anything about bereaved parents. I can't help. I'm, I'm... She calmed herself. She watched the film and she realized all she had to do was to be there and listen. Mm -hmm. And this is someone who had this kind of training and background too, right? Yeah, yeah, because doctors are are not necessarily trained how to deal with grief, particularly the grief of a child. Oh, not at all. I can tell you that. I went to medical school. We have no training on it whatsoever. But it's fascinating. She's a doctor and she says that. So, you know, she wasn't trained how to do this, but that's the direction she's taken. And she is a wise, wise woman because, as we know, an awful lot of doctors feel completely out of their depth and don't know how to listen because they want to fix it. And when you can't fix it, you feel so useless. It's not for fixing. It, it is. A, it was a huge deal for me, right? Because that's all I was trained to do. I was trained to fix problems. And this is a problem I can't fix. I can't fix it for me. I can't fix it for my husband. I can't fix it for my kids. I can't fix it for anybody. But, but I can listen. And you listen well, and it's beautiful, and it's very therapeutic, and you're giving people a gift. And that's what's important here. You know, you have learned. You never knew this was going to be your life trajectory. You didn't know it, but you didn't think you'd do podcasts. But podcasts are about sharing your wisdom and just being there and listening. And sharing stories. And sharing stories. And that's what helps. Mm -hmm. That's what you can do. That's what you do. That's your way. So the book, When Words yeah. Are Not Enough, it's all about that. Find what you can do if you can and do it. doesn't matter what it is, whether it's making pom-poms, whether it's a huge mural, whether it's talking to, you know, it's whatever works for you. Well, I think it's very uh, timely that the date that this podcast episode is to be released just happens to be the day <laughs> the book is being released. It's pretty incredible, that, isn't it? I know, it really is. We were just talking about it a little bit before we started recording. I was looking up and I said, this will be released on October 6th. And you said, oh my, that's the date of our book release or of our scheduled book release. So I don't know. I think it was divine intervention somehow to make it be. Some form of synchronicity because we've just received the postcards and that's the cover of the book. I don't know if you can see that. I know, it looks beautiful. And that's the picture of Josh asleep before he, years before he died. But, you know, it, it just has become the cover of the book. And 
it can be pre-ordered and it will be available in, in the US and the UK worldwide. So it's available to anyone who wants to order it. Yeah. How can someone order a, order that book? Well, I will send you the link and maybe you could include that in your podcast when it goes out. Or I can, I mean, it, our, through our publisher, it will be on Amazon. Not yet. It's, but, you know, it will be available, easily available. And there will be a US distributor. So, so I'll have all the information. Just to people listening, just go to my website right now or to andysmom.com and I will make sure to have a link that will get you to the right spot so that you can order the book because yeah. I think it will be beautiful and I I am excited to watch the film on Amazon. It looked like it was like just two ninety nine, so not very much money to be able to watch it. And the, the love that never dies. Yes, that's available yes. on Amazon Prime, and all our other films are available via the Good Grief Project website, which is the one that I read out earlier. So all that information will be on our website as well. You know, we just—I suppose—we just want to say that all we do is dedicated to people who've gone through an untimely death. The book isn't necessarily bereaved it's not all bereaved parents there's a lot of bereaved parents and it's people who've been bereaved in an untimely way mm -hmm. maybe of a, of a parent it could be of you know it could be of a partner it's there's quite a few people who've been bereaved of kids but the film a love that never dies is purely bereaved parents and siblings um but all the work is around grief and and the beast that is grief that you need to work with to get through well, thank you so much for the work you've done. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Again, I can't wait to watch all that you continue to do because it's really, really amazing work. Well, thank you so much. And I'm so sorry about your Andy and, you know, your grief and that you've had to go through it. But, you know, we do something with it that I guess helps us accommodate it in a more comfortable way, but nothing will fix it. And I'm yes. sorry. You're, you're right about that. Oh, it's lovely well, to talk thank you. you and you got me all emotional today so <laughs> that's normal that's uh, but good. i think that's good i think that's good it's good i was just thinking the other day i'm like i feel like i need a good cry you know how there are days where you feel like things are just building and building and building and you just need to let it out i think it's healthy and you know the, the grief retreats are very much about that everyone comes on the retreats they they laugh as much as they cry funnily enough there's a lot of laughter in there and there can be a lot of humor within grief. And it's, that's it's so right. funny because you wouldn't think that would be the case, but it absolutely is. When you're able to take the mask totally off, then it opens up all of those emotions and the laughter can come too. Because when you leave the mask on, oftentimes you feel like I shouldn't cry, I shouldn't laugh, I shouldn't do too much. You just have everything covered up. So when you can take it off, it leads to many, many emotions. Exactly. And that's just your authentic response to something that's real. So thank you for inviting me. And I really look forward to seeing it and being in touch with the work you do. And then maybe people will review our book and let us know what they think. We, we value feedback so much as a small charity. We need that feedback. It's really helpful to us. Yes. Yes. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, 
PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at andysmom.com. Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.